Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on February 18th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. And you know what the hottest sport in the world is right now. Thanks to the Winter Olympics, it is, of course, curling. That's the one where the guy slides the big heavy rock down the ice while two other guys furiously sweep the ice in front of the moving rock. Well, maybe you've seen this fairly hilarious commercial on NBC promoting Olympic curling. The skip brings the hammer. He doesn't want to leave this one too thin. Oh, nice rock. Oh, he's got good line. Good line. Down the sheet it comes. This one's got a chance. Got it. Oh, into the house. He's got it. A double takeout. It's a double takeout. Oh, oh. The Americans have delivered a message. Not in my house. Not tonight. The Vancouver Olympics. The spike in curling interest prompted David Letterman Wednesday night to say, uh, It's all the excitement of shuffleboard curling, uh, uh. plus uh, household chores. You know, it just... Uh. In his top ten list of surprising things about curling, number one was no one cares. But we know that's not true. We know that you care because curling is all about physics. Which is why four years ago, after the last Winter Olympics, I interviewed a scientist named Mark Shigelsky from the University of Northern British Columbia. He studies curling physics. Back then, this program had a different format of shorter interviews, and I ran only five minutes of the conversation I had with Shigelsky. But with more time now to talk, I went back and I re-edited the entire long conversation I had with him. So sit back with some hot cocoa and maybe an intro physics textbook, because here we go. You are not a full-time curling physicist. What do you do with, with most of your time? Well, most of the time I'm teaching, roughly 30% of the time or 40% of my time goes to research, and my research is currently uh, in, in the area of quantum mechanical tunneling and decay. People might not have heard of quantum tunneling and decay. Can you briefly explain what that is? Well, if you, if you imagine a marble inside of a bowl, and it's rolling around in that bowl, if it doesn't have enough energy to get right up to the top, it's going to stay in the bowl, and it won't ever get outside. If you then consider the, cor- the same problem, but on a quantum mechanical scale, so you're thinking of, for example, a, mar- a, a particle such as an electron. If, if it's experiencing the same kind of a potential, it's in a, it's in a well or a bowl, um, and there's a, there's a, a barrier that that the electron needs to overcome to get outside. Uh, what what is found is that, uh, and this is well known, is that particles emerge uh, from inside of this potential bowl or potential well, and they emerge outside with less energy than we, you would need to have to clear the barrier. In other words, the, air, the energy of the particle is below the, the maximum of the potential uh, the potential uh, well for the for the particle. So they have snuck right through the wall. So yeah, the, the term tunneling comes from it's it's as if in thinking about it from our everyday experiences, it's as if the particle somehow tunneled through this this barrier, this uh, this potential uh, that it had to get over, and it, and, it, and it got out with less energy than it had to get over. So from an everyday experience point of view, from, a, from an everyday point of view, uh, you couldn't really understand this except to say somehow that it's tunneled through. It's one, of the, at, 
the details of the quantum mechanics, you find out how this happens. And there's lots of problems that are still uh, still need to be solved in this area, and that's the area that I'm looking at. It's one of the really weird things about quantum mechanics. But yeah, pretty much most things about quantum mechanics are uh, you know, in opposition to our regular everyday experiences. And so one of the first things students have to do in, in, in learning quantum mechanics is they have to give up the uh, regular everyday ideas that we have and accept a new way of looking at things. And in that sense, quantum mechanics is quite difficult because it, it isn't something that you experience on a daily basis. And, and that brings me to curling, believe it or not. I know that you uh, have done some scholarly studies of the physics of curling. And uh, the reason I got in touch was I was watching curling during the Olympics. And, and you see these people furiously sweeping the ice in front of this big, heavy granite rock as it's going down the ice. And what, what are those sweepers actually accomplishing from a physics point of view? Well, there's several things. The most important one is that by sweeping in front of the ice, you are uh, reducing the friction between the rock and the ice. And let's just stay with that for a bit. Uh, with the reduced friction, the rock the rock still slows down, but it it doesn't slow down as quickly. And so, therefore, if you sweep if you sweep a rock vigorously in front, if you sweep the ice in front of the rock, you can actually make the rock go quite a bit further than it would go if you didn't sweep. And what is actually happening when you sweep? Are they melting the surface? Okay, to get an answer to that that's unequivocal is quite difficult. Um, But there are some things that that, uh, are generally agreed upon. Uh, First of all, by by sweeping the ice, you're, you're putting energy into the ice. And so... You know, the, the important thing is that what governs the motion of the rock is what's going on between the, the thin contact ring of the rock and the ice that it's, it's touching. And, you know, if you turn over a curling rock and look at it, you'll see that it is not the case that there's a, a circle in contact with the rock. It's a, it's a, it's a thin ring, and um, the ice itself is also not flat. It's pebbled. It has little hills and valleys so that the actual area of contact is quite small, and therefore there's a large pressure of the rock on the ice. Now, in, in sweeping in front of the ice, you're, you're bringing the temperature of the ice up, and that reduces the friction. But you, uh, you are also uh, creating a thin film of a, a quasi-liquid type of material. This is something that is not uh, fully agreed upon by everybody, but you know, the work that we've done strongly supports the idea that the key thing going on is the is the uh, friction that is due to this thin liquid film. In fact, uh, we did a number of experiments. Dr. Eric Jensen and I, he's a, my colleague at the University of Northern British Columbia, and uh, we did a number of experiments and then applied the theory that I had developed, and we, we modified that theory and applied it, and we could explain many things uh, using the idea that there is a thin liquid film there as opposed to that it's, that there's not a film there. So I'm very 
uh, I'm strongly convinced that there is a thin liquid film there, and it plays a, a key role. With with the liquid film, you have you have better lubrication for the rock, and so you have less friction, and that's how the sweeping makes it go a further distance. And your most recent curling publication, you've had, I think, four that I found. Uh, is that right? How many how many scholarly papers on curling have you published? Uh, <laughs> more than I'd like to admit. Uh, <laughs> it turned out that, you know, in first starting to look at the problem, uh, I didn't anticipate so many interesting questions come up. And I don't actually remember how many I've published, but it, it's something like eight or, or something like that. Um, but the one that's the most important, in my opinion, is the most recent paper that Dr. Eric Jensen and I collaborated on and published in the Canadian Journal of Physics in November of 2004. And that's the Motion of Curling Rocks Experimental Investigation and Semi-Phenomenological Description. Exactly. And tell us what you studied there and, and the kind of conclusions you came to. Well, what, what we... Um, what I was facing at that time was uh, a need to, to to refine the theory to bring it uh, in in line so that it could agree better with with things that were known about the motion of curling rock on pebbled ice. And so uh, I wanted to do every possible experiment that we could do within reason. And I'll talk about this for a little bit and. Um, tell you, you know, give you a fairly full description of what we did. First of all, we, we had um, the ice technicians at Prince George Golf and Curling Club. They made a flat sheet of ice by simply flooding. And then they laid a grid down with ribbons and threads of different colors, red and black. And so, uh, and then flooded over that so that it was actually a grid under underneath the flat sheet of ice. And later, they pebbled that sheet of ice. So what we did was we looked at all sorts of motions of curling rocks on the flat sheet of ice, the flooded sheet of ice, and also the pebbled sheet of ice. So this, so the, so the flat, the flooded sheet of ice is not, uh, what you have in a curling game, but it's definitely important from a scientific point of view. You want to know what's going on on the flooded sheet, the flatter sheet, as opposed to the pebbled sheet. And we, we compared a lot of, uh, we compared a lot of motions and, uh, compared the results between the flat sheet and the, and the pebbled sheet. The, the flat sheet is, is acting as your control. Actually, I, I don't know if I'd say that, but I'd say that it, it allowed us to, to, uh, go, it allowed us to investigate all possible, um, emotions that we could think of within reason, of course. You can always do much more. Mm-hmm. But for example, you can have, you can take a curling rock and simply rotate it and don't slide it and just have it go in a pure rotational motion. So we could look at that on flat ice as opposed to pebbled ice. And then we could do shots where you would push the rock, but not very hard, so it wouldn't travel very far, and you'd have it spinning very rapidly. And at the other extreme, we would have the rock going for all the way down the ice and uh, rotating maybe two or three times, 
Um, and then another shot that we did was having the rock go all the way down the ice, but rotating um, between 2 and 80 times going down the ice. So the rock is, is either rotating exceptionally slowly as it makes its way in a uh, linear motion, or it's, it's rotating very quickly as it's going down in a linear motion. Yeah. Um, yes, that's, that's right. Um, one, of the, one of the key things for us was not just to look not just at the shots you'll see in a curling game, but other, other shots that you definitely don't see. So, for example... The, uh, when we did, when we would record, we would videotape the motion by having a camera on a boom above the rock, follow the rock down the ice. And so the camera was more or less, al- almost above the rock at all points. There'd be a slight variation because the rock would move side to side. But, uh, in the standard curling shot, you'd have two or three full rotations of the rock going down the entire sheet of the ice. And we, we did, we did study those, that motion. Uh, we also studied the case where you have a strong component of rotational motion. For example, if the rock rotates 80 times in going down the sheet of ice, the rotational motion and the rotational energy is much greater than in a regular curling shot. And so it becomes of interest to see, well, how, how does this what, what do you get as a result of this higher rotation? Mm-hmm. So one of the big deals is that the, the rock, if I understand this correctly, the rock doesn't move in the direction that you would expect it to move based on the rotation. As it's going down the ice path, it's breaking in a way that you would expect not to happen based on the direction that the rock is spinning. Correct. So if it's spinning, let's say the rock is spinning clockwise, you would expect it on dry ground. You, if you if you had something spinning clockwise on dry ground, it would break in what direction? To the left. Yeah. If you take a drinking glass that has that's a nice cylindrical, uh, a nice cylindrical symmetry, and you turn a drinking glass over and rotate it clockwise and push it so it's sliding away from you, this glass will curl to the left as it goes away from you. And that's exactly the opposite to what the curling rock does. You take the curling rock rotating clockwise and send it away from you, the curling rock curls to the right. So from a from a physics point of view, it's easy to understand that the drinking glass curls to the left. People who curl, they are surprised that the drinking glass, when rotating clockwise and moving away from them, curls to the left. They're so used to seeing what happens on the ice that they expect the the dry ground situation to be the same. Yeah, based on their experience, they sometimes think that you're doing a magic trick or something like that. And then you know you give the give the drinking glass to the curler and make the curler do the shot of the drinking glass and for themselves. And then they see that yeah, this happens every time. Hmm. So uh, there's something very different going on with the curling rock on pebbled ice as opposed to this drinking glass overturned on, say, a countertop or a tabletop. Okay, so what's going on? Do we know? We we investigated that rather thoroughly, as I said, and the the idea that we the ideas that we used to explain what we saw, uh, these ideas worked very well. And one of the main things about this was that there would be uh, more melting 
of, of the thin liquid film at, at the front than at the back. And this thin, this thin film is very, 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 very thin, so you, you can't observe it directly. But having more melting at the front of the rock than at the back makes the friction at the front of the curling rock less than it is at the back. And so you can understand this by looking at the drinking glass and the curling rock. Let's take them both to be rotating clockwise. And let's look first at the drinking glass as it slides on a, on a countertop. The, the drinking glass, the front of the drinking glass has a sideways motion to the right. And therefore the friction at the front will be to the left. Right. I now mean, in the case I mean of correct, the, to the left. Yes. Gotcha. The motion's to the right as it's turning clockwise, so the friction that it's, that it's, uh, encountering is going to the left. Correct. And, um, the drinking glass has a tendency to tip forward. It doesn't actually lift off. The back doesn't actually lift off unless the friction is very high. But, but it has a tendency to push harder. It, it does push harder on the tabletop at the front than the back. And therefore, the tabletop pushes harder back on the drinking glass at the front as compared to the back. Uh-huh. And that means that the friction at the front is greater, has a, has, is a stronger force than the friction at the back. So that component is pushing it to the left as it moves forward. Um, the back component, okay, so the, it's rotating clockwise. Right, and the front is is stronger than the back. The friction at the front stronger than the back, and pushes it to the left because that's the direction the friction is pushing. That's right. At the front of the drinking glass, the sideways motion is to the right. The friction is to the left, and it's greater than what goes on at the back. At the back, the clockwise rotation, the the sideways motion is to the left, and the friction is to the right. So the friction at the back is to the right. Friction at the front is to the left, but the friction at the front is stronger than it is at the back. And Got therefore, it. the curling, the, cur- the, the rotating drinking glass curls to the left. Right. But in your rock situation on the ice, because of what you just explained about the, the thin film up front, you have the opposite frictional situation. Exactly. Um, at the, 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 the rolls are reversed. Instead of the friction of the friction at the front of the curling rock is less than it is at the back. And so therefore, it's the friction force, the sideways component of the friction force at the back is to the right. And therefore, the curling rock curls to the right. Very interesting. Now, you, you are a curler yourself, is that right? Um, I'm no longer uh, active in curling, um, but, I, but I was for quite quite some time. And you know, that's what got me interested in trying to understand what was going on with the rock and the way it moved. Sure. What, uh, what in the curling, I don't know anything about it other than the little I've seen on TV, but uh, were you uh, the person who actually throws the rock or were you the one of the sweepers or what was your position? Um, well, the, the positions are you have four, four people. Uh, the, the person who shoots, who shoots first is called the first. And the second person is called the second. The third is called the the, the vice skip, or the or third. And the last person who shoots is called the skip. Now, um, the skip needs to have a very good understanding of the game and the strategy, and has to be very good at observing how the ice conditions change as the game goes on. 
So when I started curling, I started at the lead position, and a little bit later I moved to the second position, and I was comfortable in that. So I I was doing you know the the, the third and fourth shot for the team and doing a lot of sweeping of the uh, the, the the lead for the person who, shoot, who would shoot first, the lead, and then also the the, the third and or the vice skip, and then the final shooter would be the skip. And the skip has to be more expert because there's so much more going on on the ice at that point with all the rocks in various positions. Yeah, curling is is you know often called chess on ice, and you you really have to know uh, really understand well what kinds of shots the other team can make, and and therefore you plan your shots in in uh, in accord with that strategy. And the other thing that's really important is that the, the skip has to, the ice conditions change as the game goes on. They're not the same at the end of the game as they are at the beginning. So, so the skip has to have a good understanding of how these ice conditions change and what, you know, which, which path you would take will, will curl more at the end of the game as opposed to the beginning of the game and, and all sorts of things like that. And, uh, do you anticipate that the research that you've done into curling physics might have any applications outside of just understanding curling. I think that there's a there's the possibility that the the work we've done on on the on the motion of curling rocks, the, the the considerations of friction there that may have a bearing on the understanding of friction in other situations where you have two materials sliding relative to each other for example uh you you could you could look at uh paper sliding over top of paper and if if the paper is is created in in one in in a certain way the friction could be small and so the paper could slide easily one sheet relative to the other or another way of doing it is to make make it so that the friction is big and therefore the paper doesn't slide uh, quickly relative to the other. So, but in, in a general sense, you'd be looking at things where you have two two surfaces that are moving relative to each other, something sliding over some other surface. And that's the kind of problem that you find in manufacturing all the time. Yeah. So I think there's there's a large number of examples that are that are uh, that it could it, it could potentially apply to. And there is a lot of work being done by other people on, with regard to this, uh, using, using their, uh, you know, other approaches. I really appreciate your time. It's, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, it is very interesting stuff. It's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, people with sleep apnea, where you stop breathing repeatedly during sleep, also experience fewer nightmares. Story two, a former Microsoft bigwig has developed a laser system that shoots down mosquitoes. Story three, carbon emissions are changing the atomic nature of maple syrup. And story four, a new DNA analysis of King Tut's mummy found not only his DNA, but the DNA of plague bacteria, meaning that he most likely died of bubonic plague. 
Times Up, story one is true. People with apnea do have fewer nightmares, which really isn't that surprising because apnea disrupts sleep, leading to less REM sleep, which is when dreams usually happen, including nightmares. That's according to a study in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. Only 21% of people with severe apnea said that they remembered at least one nightmare a week, as opposed to 71% of people without apnea. It's still not worth having the apnea. Story two is true. The mosquito laser system burns the wings off the skeeters. It was developed by Intellectual Ventures, the company run by Nathan Mirvold, Microsoft's former chief technology officer. The thing can even target just female mosquitoes of a specific species because the timing of the wing beats is gender and species specific and that's what gets targeted. Mirvold thinks a laser shooter could ultimately cost only about 50 bucks so it might even find a place in mosquito control in regions with malaria. I've seen slow motion footage of the mosquitoes being taken down. You can find it on the web. It's the only thing I've ever seen that actually made me feel sorry for the mosquitoes. And story three is true. Today's maple syrup has a different carbon isotope ratio than the maple syrup of 30 or 40 years ago because of more carbon emissions, some of which get incorporated back into growing vegetation. That's according to a study in the journal Nature. Oil and coal emissions are low in carbon-13, which has seven neutrons. The more common carbon-12 has six neutrons. The ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13 in foods is usually a good clue about where the ingredients originated. In fact, food scientists can tell, or could tell, if allegedly pure maple syrup had been doctored with additional sweeteners by measuring the carbon isotope ratios. But what's now an environmentally changed isotope ratio could make it harder to see if maple syrup or other foods are being altered before being sold. All of which means that story four about King Tut dying from bubonic plague is totally bogus. Because the new DNA and CAT scan analysis of Tut did not turn up any plague genes. The work appears in the Journal of the American Medical Association and is covered in an article you can find on our website. The new autopsy results, if you will, did find malaria bacterium DNA, meaning that Tut might have had malaria in addition to numerous bone problems. He had a tough, short life, showing that in some cases, it's not good to be the king. That's it for this week. I'm off to San Diego for the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, so we'll probably have material from that big conference next week and for a few weeks after. In the meantime, get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you'll find the in-depth report on where the stimulus money went in the world of science and technology. Oh, and you can follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. My Twitter name is the same as my actual name. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. (laughs) 